Hi, I'm Bill Mitchell, host of When Dating Hurts. Two years ago, I launched my Dating Violence podcast. Back then, I knew very little about recording, editing, or uploading to a hosting platform. Frankly, I didn't know what a hosting platform meant. When recording episodes, I needed it to be easy for me and my guests. You see, I was capturing highly emotional personal stories, and I couldn't have guests fiddling around, clicking buttons, starting and stopping over and over again. I launched with Zencaster, and I stayed with them. The reason is, it's just so darn easy. And today's Zencaster lets you record with high-quality audio and video. You can edit and distribute, too, all in one place. No more bouncing around from one platform to another to create your podcast. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code when dating hurts, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same experiences I do for all my podcasting and content needs. Isn't it time to tell your story? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Today, we welcome Maureen Murray, the Community Education Coordinator for Laurel House in the Philadelphia area. Laurel House is a full-service domestic violence agency just outside of Philly. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for joining us on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for having me here today. Uh, I'm really honored to be able to do anything I can to help further the messages that you've been sending out to your listeners. That's absolutely great. And I'm certain this is going to be very helpful because I have a lot of questions. I'm very curious about a whole lot of things. Where I'd like to start is you head out into the community, you create and you deliver curricula about healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships. You talk about teen dating violence, domestic violence to middle school, all the way to college students. But today I'd like to just focus on early high school, meaning the ninth and 10th graders. I would imagine that if you went into a classroom or spoke before a group and you started out talking about dating violence to that group, you wouldn't get very far because some of them maybe not even thinking about dating, let alone what are you talking about? So my question then is, where do you begin this conversation? So you bring up a really good point. And one of the things that we're constantly talking about in the type of work that I do is where do we start? Because obviously our goal is to try to get out information that can help save lives, right? They can help people either save their own life, save the life of somebody else that they know. And beyond that point though, also just protecting their mental and emotional health, which sometimes gets overlooked in the conversations we have about dating violence or domestic violence, right? Um, but we do also have to remember, as you said, the stage of life that the audience members that we're talking about are currently in. So as you said, the idea of teenagers and especially ninth and 10th graders, many of them probably haven't had romantic relationships at this point. Some mm -hmm. might, but mm -hmm. many don't, right? But they are constantly taking in information about what romantic relationships look like. So that is usually where we start, right? If they're not dating, it could be that friends have started to date. 
but it could also be family members that they see in romantic relationships. They're constantly getting messages from the media, TV, movies, books, songs about what love is, about what romance is. So even if they're not ready to seek that out, they are starting to create sort of these archetypes or these schemas for what love and relationships look like. So we usually start there and we try to figure out what is it they're already thinking about what is healthy and what is unhealthy. And then we try to bring the conversation to them. You then start out, I would imagine, talking about the many aspects of a healthy relationship. Would that be a good place where you start, do you think? For the most part, I would say actually a lot of times uh, when we go out to schools, we really try to emphasize or prioritize an interactive discussion, right? So one of the checkpoints we have for ourselves is absolutely make sure that we talk about what healthy relationships look like, things like trust, communication, respect, even just the feelings that we associate with healthy relationships, right? A feeling of being comfortable talking about things that maybe are going wrong in the relationship, feeling comfortable setting boundaries, right? At the very least, having a distinct lack of fear or concern or anxiety about having to do those things. But when we first jump in, we really try to give them some scenarios, right? And ask them what they think about whether they are healthy or unhealthy, because that helps us get to the idea of what is their current understanding and where does that conversation need to go? Because we do really want to think about it as a conversation with the students rather than just a lecture from us. Some of the things we do want to really focus on pushing back, especially on problematic assumptions that they have or have started to take in about what healthy relationships look like, right? Um, Things like... So we'll stay stay with that for just a moment. So pushing back, could you give me an example what what that may look like? You mean like something's going on, they don't really want that. So pushing back that way and how to do that? So in terms of pushing back, what I mean is making them question some of the assumptions that they currently have, right? So for example... Many students, when we talk to them about certain scenarios in dating relationships, they're not really familiar with what love bombing looks like. Some of them have actually heard that term, but it's it's so hard to distinguish that from a healthy relationship. We've run into that term before, and I've had other people describe love bombing, but I'd like to hear your version of that. Sure. So love bombing is really common, especially in sort of the honeymoon phase of an abusive relationship, right? It's that moment where you feel like this is maybe the most romantic person you've ever met in your life, right? It feels like it's something straight out of a movie, TV show, book, whatever. And you are constantly, maybe you feel very supported. Maybe you feel like there's a lot of romantic gestures. Maybe you feel like there's a lot of care given to you or compliments given to you. And you've really been built up and you're kind of put on this pedestal. And that can feel very good. And it builds a strong emotional bond quickly. Mm-hmm. The problem is what happens after that, right? And it kind of sets you up for a big fall. Okay. Now let me throw something in here. It was sounding like we were talking about healthy relationships and things like that. And I was thinking like guys to guys, girls mm-hmm. to girls, not mm-hmm. regarding dating, but this is sounding mm-hmm. very much like the early stages of dating. I mean, I think it could work in both ways, right? Because we do also, so in earlier grades, especially sixth, seventh, eighth grade, we do talk a lot about friendships. And I think that we see some similarities in certain behaviors, even at a friend level, right? So maybe your friend is constantly buying you really expensive gifts for your birthday. Maybe it's your best friend, right? And they're buying you expensive gifts constantly. It feels like they always want to give you attention or support. But then as you start to 
not pull away actually, but as you start to put effort into some of the other really important relationships in your life, Mm, okay. um, it feels like you're pulling away. And uh, then you start to see some of those sort of similar consequences that we might see in a dating relationship. So the person who has been bringing the good, so to speak, and emotionally or, or through material items, whatever that is, you know, just gestures, whatever that is, that person sees that it's not getting the desired effect maybe, and now is kind of turning on you. You're kind of paying for not doing what that person wants. Is that a good in interpretation of what you're saying or did I miss the mark on that? No, I think, I think you have it. I think sometimes the way I try and think about love bombing for myself is that it's what a healthy relationship would look like at like a 200% level, but there's always strings attached, right? So it's like all of those good feelings that we think that we want, it's the attention, the support, but there's always that string attached at the end of it. Right. Or it's always like amped up to a level that might start to feel overwhelming or uncomfortable. It's just too intense. It's too much, too frequent, whatever that is. Right. Absolutely. Right. The intensity is too much for the situation. I and know. I think that that can happen in friendships as well as dating relationships. Okay. And I think it's important to address even at the early stages of a high school student's career or life um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because love bombing can be so hard to distinguish from yes. what a healthy relationship is supposed to look like. And yes. also it can be so hard to distance that from what we see in the media all the time, where it's like somebody is swept off their feet in these great romantic ways, but it has a happy ending, right? And so trying to combat that assumption or have them question the assumption of, any act that is generally seen as romantic necessitates the idea of love or support and making them see that it really depends on the intention behind that action or how that action makes you feel. It's got to be tough because whatever the relationship is, when you met that person, you were probably at some point, I mean, you're thinking, gee, I hope this works out. Okay. And all of a sudden it goes from working out to it's, like they, I used to hear people say, it's like trying to take a drink of water from a fire hydrant. You know, it's like got the water kind of intense. So especially for people who are young, who are, I don't know, ninth, 10th, let's say grade, who probably haven't had this experience maybe ever, or at least not much, whose coping skills are in their formative roots. Well, that's a lot to ask. I mean, I'm kind of daunted just thinking about that. Well, it's a lot to keep track of. I mean, thinking from the students' perspectives, right? right? Like you're saying, first of all, we have to remember they're they're figuring out this whole love thing, right? Yes. They're seeing depictions of it, but they don't necessarily have a lot of lived experiences. Yes. Um, yes. A lot of it really depends on what their what their home life looks like or what the relationships within their family look like, the ones that they've grown up with. That's usually the best case of getting an idea of what a supportive, healthy relationship could look like, but not everybody has that. Yes. So the next place they're probably going to see it is in the media. And one of the things that we find is that besides the fact that some, some aspects that we know are problematic are sort of romanticized in the media, we also have the fact that there's so many hormones firing in their brains. And so they want excitement. They want new. They do have really powerful, real emotions that they're struggling with, and they're still learning how to cope with them in various aspects of their life. It's a lot being thrown out at them all at the same time. 
I can remember a lot of that, but in your description, you really brought it back because you're questioning a lot. You know, you look in the mirror differently. You know, you compare yourself to your friends or, you know, are you worthy or, you, you know, are you handsome? Are you pretty? Are you, am I going to be any taller than this? You know, whatever you're going through, you know, can you, can I throw a baseball like the other guys? What's wrong with me? You know, how come I don't measure up, you know, whatever that is. And I'm sure nowadays with the media coming at people so intensely, and then we can throw in social media so that if you are outstanding in one way or another, you're going to pay for it, I would think. So that's that's a whole heck of a lot. How much do you think when you speak, again, thinking ninth and 10th graders, how much do you see your job as being trying to bring awareness about the realities of life versus doing that, but also maybe hinting around about people watching or trying to change their behavior? Usually we do start, as I said, with that idea of what are they currently thinking about relationships? How are they maybe idealizing them or just conceptualizing them? But we do want to make sure that we touch on those aspects of control to be looking out for. Yes. And in fact, that comes up a lot in those conversations that we have early on about love bombing or romanticizing traits like jealousy or obsession or controlling behaviors or feeling like it just means that they care about you so much. And we start to kind of peel back those layers and start talking about the impact that those actions may have and the intent behind them, right? And that's where we start to get into that discussion of power and control and what the aim of some of these manipulative tactics can look like. Yeah, I like the fact that you do it in kind of a conversational way with them too. I mean, it's not, if you had 45 minutes, it's not 45 minutes of you speaking and showing a PowerPoint, I would imagine. I mean, do you kind of open up for discussion when you're doing this? So usually the way that it works is that we will have PowerPoint slides, especially because there are some small information dumps in there. The big thing for us really is those conversations, right? So we do a very brief introduction to Laurel House and our services and kind of what it means to be a domestic violence services agency. We do use that language with them, but we also want to make sure that we're explaining what that actually means in concrete steps, right? So we talk about the services that we offer. We talk about the fact that really at the highest level, what being a domestic violence services agency means is that we care about people and the relationships that they're in, and we want them to feel safe and supported. We then will give some guidelines for the discussion, right? Things like letting them know that we are mandated reporters, that we want to be a confidential resource for them. And in most cases we can be but there's certain information that if they share it with us, we have to share with other people for their protection. We talk about the need for respect in that space. We talk about remembering that everybody has different experiences that they have either lived or witnessed. And so being respectful to, for example, a lot of young kids, whether that's young kids in terms of sixth graders or young adults or becoming young adults, ninth and 10th graders, will use humor when they feel uncomfortable. So even talking about the fact that when you have people with such different experiences, think about before you make a joke, before you laugh, what message might you accidentally be sending? So we go over ground rules like that. And honestly, the very next slide is us jumping into a group activity where they're meant to be discussing different behaviors that they might see in relationships and trying to determine based off of the definitions they currently have before we talk about it, which ones are healthy, which ones are unhealthy, and which ones are abusive. Then you make a distinction between unhealthy and abusive. 
We do. And I think that's one of the things that's trickiest, right? Because it's always hard to know where that tipping point is between something that is within sort of the normal realm of unhealthy and then going into this has become dangerous for you, whether mentally or emotionally or physically. And so Mm -hmm. this is the stage where we really need you to consider getting help, right? And as we all know, when you have a relationship that is abusive, it doesn't start that way. Right. So there Mm -hmm. really is a continued escalation. So the question is kind of where does that abusive part start? And the answer is sort of it already started at the unhealthy stage. You just didn't know it was going to progress. So we do categorize them differently. When we're using the abusive term or category in this activity, we will give simple examples at the end of it of things that are normally considered abusive. These could Uh be things that are very easy to see for most people, right? Ones that most people wouldn't argue could be anything other than abusive. This could be somebody shouting at you using derogatory language that's very clearly meant to bring you down, to attack your self-esteem and your sense of self-worth. This would be physical abuse. This would be sexual abuse things that most people aren't really very confused about. Mm, But we talk about the root of that, right? We talk about the fact that the root of those actions is power and control, right? The use of threats, the use of force, the use of demands, the use of physical violence are all meant to get you to change your behaviors, to either get you to stop doing something you are or start doing something that you are not. And when we look at it that way, that's where we start talking about the fact that some of the things in the unhealthy category things that could be manipulation that are much more subtle and harder to see if we think about whether it's something that's being done with the intent to get us to change our behavior, that's how we start to decide whether those unhealthy behaviors really are abusive. Great way to look at it. I love that we're having this conversation because it's easy to see the world in black and white and you know, there are many other shades there and it's, these are tough calls. I mean, these would be tough calls for any of us. And now we're looking at it like, you know, ninth or 10th grade, ninth grade would be. It's usually between like, so 14, 15 are the ages that usually go through like ninth and then to 10th grade. One thing that we really stress, especially during this activity that I just mentioned, because sometimes you'll have a scenario that in one situation can be healthy and in another, it could be abusive, right? We talk about if somebody wants to know your location and students always think about, well, if I share my location with friends or I share my location with my parents, right? It's because they care about me because they want me to be safe. But in another context, if it's somebody who feels like they want you to share your location because they need you to prove where you are Uh or they just need to know where you are at all times, all of a sudden that has swung way on the other side to the unhealthy or even abusive category. And so we talk about that importance of context. So when we're thinking about this activity that we do, one of the most important things I think that you said is this idea of that spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. There aren't just distinct categories of behavior. We have this spectrum and sometimes context and intent or even impact can really tell us where something is going to fit along that line. Mm-hmm. But changing just one part of it could give us a totally different reading on the situation. Yes, absolutely. For example, one of the things that we talk a lot about in our discussions with these scenarios is how something that sounds really healthy, like I miss you when you aren't around and I want to spend more time with you, right? Something that you could very easily hear in the honeymoon stage of an abusive relationship. 
it feels like it could feel really good to you. It feels like something that would be a hallmark of a healthy relationship, but we have to dig deeper. How often is this person telling us this? Does it feel like they're telling us this whenever we make plans with other people or when we make time for ourselves to do the things that sustain us or make us feel good about our lives or that we have interest in? Or is it after you haven't seen them for two weeks because it was spring break, right? There's very different reactions we have to that same scenario based off of this broader context. When we really come to the root of it, right? If we're talking about a situation where somebody says they miss you when you aren't around and they want to spend more time with you and you feel like you're already spending all this time with them or you feel like it's every time you're trying to do something without them that's just for you, even though it sounds very different, even though it sounds flattering, it really at its root is not that different than somebody demanding that you spend your time with them or mm -hmm. threatening you if you continue doing things that don't include them. Because the aim is the same, right? It's that changing your behavior. It's getting you to feel bad about the fact that you are supporting these other very important relationships in your life or these other important pursuits of your life and you're not spending time with them. And as soon as that starts to change your behavior, as soon as you no longer think you can have an open discussion with the person that you are with about that so that you can still feel like that right is protected for you, whether because you're sick of arguing with them because you feel like you're just exhausted from the conflict or if it's because you're scared of what their reaction might be, it's already started to change your behaviors. You know, it's interesting that a lot of that is what I heard from my daughter's friends in her last couple months of her life. And even in her, her last few emails to me, they got into the fact that he was really annoying and she couldn't spend time with other friends. And I mean, it comes right out of these classic signs that you're talking about right now. So I'm glad you brought those up. I would imagine that once you lay a lot of this foundation for your audiences, then it becomes a lot easier to say, you know, the relationships and the way you handle relationships with your friends really is not that different from a dating relationship. You know, the, that being a good friend to someone today, having the give and take, the sense of Anybody's suggestion could be a good one. We don't always have to do it your way or my way and, and on and on. That's good practice for having a healthy relationship when it's a romantic relationship or, or what could turn into a romantic relationship, you know, a dating relationship. So I can see how that kind of helps guide them and really inform them and, as to that sort of sense of, of fair play easily extends. It's good practice for later. I honestly think for me growing up, I actually thought it was like a whole, like a whole new set of rules. It's like, well, the relationship I had with my friends has nothing to do with my relationship with my girlfriend and everything's different now. And it's, it's really not. A lot of it's very much the same. That's absolutely true. And especially with students in that sort of eighth through 10th grade category, where it's like, maybe they're starting to think about dating or people in their life are starting to think about dating, but many of them don't have those experiences yet. We really do try to root a lot of our discussions in friendships, right? Especially if it feels like things aren't quite landing, like maybe they don't have enough experience as a group to really understand some of the dynamics. We bring it back. We bring it back to friendships. We talk about the fact that, hey, some of these scenarios we're talking about I know we're saying dating partner, but this is also true in a friendship, right? If you have, as I said before, a best friend who it starts to feel like they don't want you hanging out with your other friends. It feels like they kind of want to monopolize all of your time. That's something that you want to be concerned about, right? That's something that you want to be able to address with them somehow. 
And if you feel safe to address it with them, and it feels like they're listening to what you have to say, and they're respecting the boundaries that you're drawing, and they do actively make changes, that can be an unhealthy moment in a friendship, but one that is part of an overall healthy relationship. Whereas if your friend continues to be very jealous of the time you're spending with other people, if they feel dismissive of the concerns that you're giving them, that's where we want to be concerned about what that relationship is really doing to you, to your mental health, and how it's isolating you from other people. I can see how it can become suffocating very quickly, and you feel like it's this is it. And, and as you well know, if you dial down your relationships with any other friends that you had, eventually they'll just kind of go away. They'll get busy with somebody else because you're just totally unavailable. It's funny you mentioned that. That's something we bring up a lot. So when we talk about mm -hmm. intent, right? So when we're thinking about power and control and dating violence or dating abuse or relationship abuse, we're often thinking a lot about the intent of the person who is doing it. And that makes a lot of sense in many contexts. It's also, I think, really important with ninth and 10th graders, especially to think about the impacts as well. If somebody cares about another person, whether it's a best friend or a dating partner, it is much harder sometimes to assess their intent for a lot of reasons. If they have been very kind or seemingly kind and supportive, we went through that honeymoon phase, we give people the benefit of the doubt, right? And so it can be hard to ascribe a less than favorable intent to that person who has built our trust up. However, if we try and switch the conversation to the impact it's having, we might have a little bit more traction, right? So for example, a student might not realize why it's so important for them to maintain those friendships in their lives. And they might say, well, I love my partner and they've been really good to me. So it's okay that I'm spending less time with my friends. It's not wrong for them to want to spend time with me. But when you start posing questions, kind of like what you just mentioned of what happens when you do stop hanging out with your friends, how easy is it for you to get back into that group, for you to feel comfortable with them, to feel supported mutually together in that relationship? You know, I'll often ask students, how do you feel when you get back from summer vacation and you haven't seen a friend for a long time? And they say it's a little bit awkward for a little bit, right? Well, if you've been spending more and more time with your partner and you're neglecting these other relationships in your life, you're going to continue to have that outsider feeling. And it might not occur to you in the moments that you're making the decision whether it's forced or whether it feels voluntary at the moment to prioritize your partner, but it is something that has an impact. And so it's something that we want them to think about because even if it's just an unhealthy behavior from somebody who's very early in a relationship or if it's abusive, it's something that you want them to start thinking about early. That's very well put. Thank you. And there's no doubt you go away on summer vacation and you catch up with people. Sometimes they're like a different person. You can't just plug yourself back in. You know, you're, you've taken yourself out of circulation. So one thing I wanted to ask you was um, your distinction between an abusive person and a bully. That's a really, really tough distinction to make. There are a lot of overlaps, I think, that we see in that type of situation. I think one of the biggest differences between an abusive person and a bully is the fact that a bully doesn't take the time to make you think that they care about you deeply. One of the hard things about the work that we do is that it's always unclear the intention that somebody has. Maybe an abusive partner does in some way love the person that they are with, and it just, there's something that is driving that behavior, right? It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't justify it. 
right? But it may not mm. be that it's all about power and control for that particular person, but their abusive behaviors are very similar to what we would see from somebody who just wants power and control, right? Exactly. I think there's a huge overlap between bullies and abusive partners, abusive friends. I think the big difference is that the type of hurt that can be caused by an abusive partner or friend is built on the idea that this person cares deeply for you, that you have built a sense of trust with them. And now they are taking actions that can be detrimental to your physical, mental, or emotional well-being. When a bully does that, it's obviously not okay, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But there's a different type of shift in trust. It might be that after a bully has been able to victimize a person, they no longer trust the institutions around them. They may have sort of a generalized issue of trust because they know that people in society can be randomly cruel to them, which is deeply problematic. And it's a huge issue. But in an intimate relationship, whether that means a dating relationship or a very close friendship, the fact that somebody who you thought you had an important relationship with, somebody who you prioritized, somebody who you thought had your back and would protect you and support you and loved you was the one who was creating the harm is a very different, I think, type of trust issue that will result from that. That's good. It is a, it's an important distinction. I think the thing is that at least from my limited experience with bullies, which could have been in elementary school, right up until some jobs that I worked, honestly. I, yeah, I would say some of them, especially in a job setting, might present themselves as the answer to your problems or your best friend. I mean, I, I think in elementary school, a bully presents as a bully <laughs> for the most part. You know, they're not trying to say, I'm here to be helpful. <laughs> then they turn it on you. No, that's absolutely true. In a job situation, I mean, I've had people I've worked for who come in might be new hires that come in and they present themselves as, look, if you have any problems, come to me. And you come to find out later on that, that you were just, you were just opening up and giving them the ammunition to turn on you later. And has a lot of elements of, of abuse. There's no doubt about it too, but, but definitely not the, uh, that close part at all. You see it as a work thing. I think most of the time you don't see it as any more than that. We're not, we're not great friends here. So we're, we're here to do work. Yeah, I think for me, the, the depth of that relationship before things happen really is a big point of difference in the scenario that you gave, right? So I'm thinking mostly of in school what happens. But you're right. There are people mm -hmm. that come into our lives who present themselves as whether it's an answer for everything that we need or your new best friend or they just seem very kind and cordial and all of a sudden that mask kind of drops, right? That's where we see more of a similarity with an abusive relationship, yes. right? Because there's the thing that you got on the surface or there's the person that you got on the surface and it feels like they were trying to reel you in a little bit for that eventual letdown where it started to twist. That's true. Because of what happened with my daughter, my ability to, to humor people who exhibit abusive behavior has gone to near zero. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, I have no patience with abusive people at this point. If I was in a work setting and somebody was just lashing out and just being cruel to somebody who they know has no power over them, I would always find myself stepping in. I'm not going to sit here and watch this take place. I'm not going to allow it. All of a sudden, I see in the person who's being abused, I, it's almost like I see my daughter in that person, and I'm just like, I, I would not 
you know, I just wouldn't do that. I would just say, this has got to stop right now. That's a really important thing though, to call it out when we do see it, because these types of issues, whether it is dating violence, abuse, bullying, or just manipulative behaviors in general, they tend to fester in silence, right? Or they are casually accepted or And so we need to be able to have discussions that show that this is not a normal that we should accept, or this is not something that's so taboo, we shouldn't be able to talk about it, right? Because if we don't have a public display of somebody putting that kind of behavior down, we just see the public display of that problematic behavior. The message that people sometimes take is that this is something that is okay, because no, especially if there are witnesses, right? This is okay because nobody else is getting involved. So clearly if other people were concerned, maybe they would or they feel like this is not something that is safe to talk about. And that is sometimes true, but it, again, it fosters the confidence that people have in perpetrating some of these behaviors. And that's part of why in our discussions with students, we really want the information to come from them sometimes, not the content specific warning signs necessarily. We want them to be able to share with their classmates their views on healthy and unhealthy behaviors because many of them in that safer space, right, in a space where it is a facilitated conversation, it is an activity as part of a presentation, and it is not happening right in front of them, feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. talking about what is problematic about that behavior. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's really important because it shows that this is a behavior that their peers do not think is okay. And I think that Mm -hmm. that's a really important message to get across at any level of our society is that these behaviors are ones that we do not think are okay to try and get rid of some of that normalization that often happens through other mediums, such as the media. You're right. I mean, if nothing happens, then you start to assume that I guess that's the culture here. And I've seen it happen where you have some abusive boss come in and exhibit certain style and all of a sudden you see other people exhibiting the same style because he's doing it and I want to be with him. You know, he's the he's the head bully and I'll be one of the flying monkeys as sometimes people refer to them. You know, I'm going to, you know, he's the witch and I'm going to fly around and I'm going to get people for him and then I'll come back and report back. I'm on your team, boss. You know, I'm I'm a bully in waiting or whatever you want to call that. What I would like to ask you is if a ninth or 10th grader feels that he or she is being abused by a classmate or a friend, but let's just say now in a school setting, what would you think that person should do? That person is looking at it like, wow, this is bigger than me. You know, I don't even feel like playing my sports or, you know, this is really in my head. Where should that person turn or what should that person do? And it's something that we think about a lot at Laurel House. So if it's a friendship that they have, if it's a bully even that they have in their lives, especially, I still think one of the best things that you can try to do with anybody who comes to you is to start thinking about safety planning. And safety planning for high schoolers sometimes looks different than it will for other people or middle schoolers even will look different. One of the first things that we try to ask students is, is there somebody in your life, an adult that you trust that you can talk to about this? because we're only seeing them for a short amount of time. And while we Mm -hmm. want to be a confidential resource for them, and we are, and we can try to arrange to have a follow-up conversation, sometimes in order to see them through to the end, it makes sense for them to have a support system within their own sphere. The first thing we always talk about is, is there somebody in your life? And oftentimes 
students do have somebody who they feel like they can talk to, but if they don't, we try to start jogging their memory because oftentimes we might think of the teachers in the school who can be a great resource. We might think of their coaches, guidance counselors, their parents, but sometimes for whatever reason, they don't feel like they can go to those people for support, especially with family. Family mm-hmm. dynamics can be difficult for different students. So thinking further afield, starting to think about like, is there an aunt or an uncle or grandparents? Just letting them remember that there is a big world around them, that there are people in their sphere and letting them decide whether they feel safe talking to them or not. So that's one thing that we always try to do mm-hmm. within those conversations. If it's clear that it's a dating relationship, I would always, always recommend that they can reach out to Laurel House. They can reach out to another dating violence agency. We're not the only ones Mm -hmm. that exist. I always tell them at the end of any presentation after we've talked about Laurel House, there are domestic violence services agencies all throughout the country, right? Even if they move, all they have to do is look up domestic violence service agency and the state that they live in or the county that they live in, and they are likely to find something to help them. The other thing that I always recommend is loveisrespect.org, right? Since they're a national organization, it works anywhere. And the fact that they also have a text line that can be reached at any point is so important. A lot of teens may not want to make a phone call. It might feel like too much pressure. And so letting them know that there is anonymous resources that they can use, especially if they're not ready to talk about what's happening in their relationship to the people in their lives for whatever the reason. Maybe they feel embarrassed about what's happening. Maybe they're worried that it's going to turn into something punitive for the person who's causing them harm and they're worried about backlash from that. Of course. Maybe they're just not ready to share something that's very private with somebody who they feel like knows them. So we want them to know that these confidential resources exist for them and that they can try to get help. They can get more in-depth safety planning for ways that they can try and protect themselves physically, mentally, emotionally in that relationship and potentially make plans to leave that relationship if they are ready to do that. Yeah, that's great. That's there's a lot of places to turn to. And I think people have to think in that way, you know, because again, you go back to somebody who's that age and look, I know of people who are in their forties who feel like they're all alone. You know, they're in a a marital violence abuse situation and they don't really want to talk with their brothers or sisters about it. There are other people maybe they don't want to talk about because they're afraid they're going to come to the house and confront this person and that could get bad. And they don't want to talk about it at work, whatever it is. And they may even think that they're the only one going through something like this. And it's just, it's embarrassing. You know, it's like, you know, to the outside world, maybe you look like this happy couple and once the door closes and you're both in the house, it's anything but happy. It's a it's a uh, war zone, if anything. It's like living in a cage. So that's really tough. But you're right. But I think the idea of, of asking them to think about people they can turn to and they can share this with, you know, because no matter what, it's going to be somebody who has at least more life experience than they do at that point in their lives. And you just don't think of everything when you're that age. I don't know if you've ever had this experience and it's very possible you haven't, but have you ever done one of your presentations and had someone come up to you afterwards and say that they actually are the abuser? I have not personally had that happen, but it has happened in previous presentations that have been given by the community education department at Laurel house. 
oftentimes I don't think it's necessarily that they know that they are abusive, but they will think to themselves as they're doing some of these activities and they're learning, especially about unhealthy behaviors, they may recognize some of those tendencies in themselves. Right. And this can be really difficult. Like we said, that tipping point between what is normal, unhealthy and abusive is really hard to say where that rests. I mean, they could be thinking, look, I'm just trying to get what I'm just, I'm trying to get my way. And I, and I just ask this person, it never happens. But when I kind of emotionally twist their arm, then I get my way. And so I do that. Absolutely. I'm not trying to be as abusive. I just trying to get my way. Absolutely. Again, it comes back to having so many emotions and hormones flooding through your brain at that age. You're still trying to learn coping skills. It's hard enough to know exactly how to fulfill your own needs at that age. It's hard for anybody, frankly, at any age sometimes to know exactly what they need or want and what are the reasonable, respectable ways to get it. But especially at that age, as they're still learning those skills for themselves, when you enter another person into that equation and now you have to anticipate not just your own needs, but theirs too, it's a lot to juggle. And so it can be really hard for them to know where those balances lie, right? Like, What's the difference between holding somebody accountable and telling them that what they've done has hurt you in some way versus guilt tripping and trying to get them to change their behavior because it's a want of yours rather than trying to get them to change their behavior because what they're doing is causing you harm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So trying to get them to grapple with that, it can be really hard. So we do try to have conversations about like, what is something that's reasonable to expect and what is something where you are impinging too much on that person's independence, sense of self, and what they need to feel happy and supported in a relationship? You know, one of the things I think about is when you're trying to get a group of ninth and 10th graders to get their attention, to hold their attention, what would you say differentiates that group, maybe ninth and 10th, from let's call it first and second year college students? That's a great question. What does your presentation look like? What's different? What are you doing differently? So when we're working with college students, we usually assume that they can go for a little bit of a longer period with listening and retaining information, right? They've kind of been socialized to be able to do that. Sure. With high schoolers, we can't expect that quite as much. Right. For high schoolers, we really want to try and use plain language as much as we can. If we are using specialized vocabulary, like, for example, Domestic Violence Services Agency, we want to make sure it has a purpose. So the reason I still tell them that is for the same reason I just mentioned before, because if you look up Domestic Violence Services Agency and any place that they live later on in life, they will be able to find what they need. Or if they see an organization and it has that listed, they know exactly what that means. So there's a purpose for it. But we also want to make sure they actually know what that means. So then we explain right after that in plain language what it means to be a domestic violence services agency. Same thing when we're talking about the definitions of abuse, et cetera. With a college group, we do sometimes focus more on that specialized terminology, depending on what they're bringing us in for, right? So if it's class where they brought us in because the content is very relevant, they may have more of an understanding both of the terminology that we're using we still want to make sure we're using plain language, but there may be sort of a higher threshold for specialized language than there is in those high school classes. We can also be slightly more abstract sometimes with the college age students. With high school, it's really good to have concrete examples. Also remembering, of course, that 
for anybody, this information can be triggering. And especially for people who are just starting out in thinking about their dating lives, potentially, you don't want to unduly scare them. Relationships are something they should be able to be excited about eventually being in. And so it's always finding that balance. With college students, we will often find that there are more who have been in relationships that have maybe been unhealthy or even abusive previously. We may find, especially in the classes we're asked to come into, since a lot of them have to do with peace and justice or nonviolence and psychology, that people tend to flock to those courses if they have lived experiences that have taken them up against adversities of some sort. And so they often will have a lot to say on these subjects, or they may be somewhat well-versed in those subjects. So we, we do have a little bit more play. We, we take a broader scope, right? We might talk a little bit more about how domestic violence organizations came about. We might talk about societal factors throughout history that have contributed to dating violence. And then there are education and awareness initiatives that we do at colleges that may look very different from that. And it may just be not going quite as far back as we do with high school students with everything having to be concrete, but they really focus more on the issue at hand of what is a healthy relationship and what isn't. Sometimes we will have them do the same activity I mentioned to you earlier of categorizing behaviors as healthy, unhealthy, and abusive. Oftentimes they have some of the same assumptions that the high school students did, but they're able to drill deeper sometimes as well. Yeah, they have more to pull from, I would imagine, right? I mean, Yes, they often see those nuances very, very quickly. I think a couple of things that are really important, especially given that they are starting to think about relationships or what they might look like. I think it's really important to always remind them, whether it's a dating relationship or a friendship, that it is important to be able to listen to your gut, right? Sometimes there may be things that make them uncomfortable. And we don't know why exactly it makes us uncomfortable, but we know that it does. And do we feel safe talking to the person who made us uncomfortable about that? I think it's also really important to prioritize talking about boundaries, again, because it's something that I think can be talked about at any stage of life. So it hits those who are still really thinking in the friendship world. It also hits those who are thinking about dating relationships. Apply the brakes for a second. So talk about boundaries for just a minute. Sure. So when we're thinking about boundaries, this is something that can be really tough because oftentimes, whether in friendships or dating relationships, especially early dating relationships, the idea of setting a boundary to some students can feel like they're punishing the other person. So they don't want to set the boundary, mm. right? So what I mean by that is if they have to tell their friend or their dating partner that they aren't able to hang out with them or talk to them on the phone because they have another obligation or they have something else that's important to them. They can feel like it's a rejection of that person. And on the flip side, the person who it's happening to may feel like it's a rejection, even though it's not intended that way. Right. So trying to solidify that conversation of like, what is a boundary? It's a limit that you're setting between you and somebody else that you are in a relationship with. Again, whether that's a friendship or a dating relationship. And it's more about what you will do rather than trying to control what they do, right? So for example, instead of even saying, you can't call me after 10 p.m., saying, I will not respond to calls after 10 p.m. because I need to prioritize. Okay, that's good. I, that's a whole different feeling, a different feeling to hear it that way. Absolutely, yes. right? It is a limit. We can think about it as a limit you set 
for both you and the other person. But a lot of times when we think about the difference of language that is talking about boundaries versus language that could be controlling, it's really about saying what your limit is on what you will do, the behavior that you will take. Anything else you think that, that we may have inadvertently missed? I think the last two things that I think are really important when working with young people. Sure. The first one is just letting them know the importance of empathy, but also understanding the vulnerability of empathy. People often think that those who are in an abusive relationship fit a certain type. And they're often surprised to learn that people who are in abusive relationships can be confident, independent, attractive, well-loved by the people who are around them. And it causes a disconnect sometimes for people because you wonder if you have all of these things going for you, if you have this validation, if you have these support systems, how is it that you could fall into a relationship like this, right? And I think- Yeah, I, I hear about that quite often. Yes, yes, and I think that that also feeds into some of the guilt and shame that people have when they find themselves in a relationship like this because they say, how could I let this happen to me? Or how could this happen? Yes, they do. That's exactly what Absolutely, they Absolutely, right? Yes. But one thing that we have to keep in mind is that for people who are kind, for people who have empathy, for people who- want to be reasonable and who understand that conflict happens and is inevitable in relationships, sometimes what happens is that we give people too much of the benefit of the doubt because we think I would never do anything to hurt that person. And so we assume that nobody would ever be disingenuous about their feelings or their needs either. And so I think it's really important to always let people know that dating violence, finding yourself in a relationship where force manipulation are being used does not mean that there is something wrong with you. It often means far more about the person who you are in that relationship with than it does about you. And that if you have empathy, if you have the ability to love someone, that you can find yourself in one of these relationships because it happens so slowly. And that you are still that confident, independent person that has everything going for them. The last thing that I think is important when working with young people is nobody can imagine that they're going to fall into an abusive relationship. And I think especially in those young years when you don't have a lot of experience in relationships, that sense of almost invulnerability can be even stronger sometimes. So I think one thing that is sometimes helpful in the work we do is framing the discussion as something that's not just about helping them, even though that is a really important part of it, but also something that is important for them to be able to help their friends if their friends should ever be in a situation that they have concerns about so that they can recognize the signs that maybe something isn't quite right so that they understand how to approach the conversation with their friend so that they understand what resources their friend may be able to rely on and how they can continue to support them whether or not they plan on leaving that relationship or if they plan on staying. And we know that in these types of relationships, friends are usually the first one to know anything. So knowing that their friend may not have the language to say, I'm in an abusive relationship or I'm in a controlling relationship, but being able to hear about the day-to-day aspects of their relationship and recognizing those problems can be so fundamental to helping curb this problem of dating violence that has obviously continued over time. 
That's really important. I'm glad you had that on your list of things to talk about because my daughter had many friends and they saw a lot of the behavior. They saw how it affected her. They saw the guy. They didn't want to be around the guy very much. And even Kristen said to me in an email that was sent within 24 hours of her getting killed that he was really getting to be annoying. The same term that her friends used, that he was annoying and they just didn't want to be around. Of course, if they weren't around, then he got his way on the isolation part of it. They didn't have the language. You know, they didn't know how to take the warning signs they saw and attach it to what was really going on. And of course, nobody would make that quantum leap to what could possibly happen about this guy if all of a sudden she were to say, no, I'm not going to date you anymore. I don't want to have anything to do with you, which apparently is what she tried to do at the very end. And, you know, she became an example of those things that you just can't do, but she didn't know any better and nor did her friends, you know, so she just kind of walked right into that whole situation. And, you know, the great value of talking with you today and talking with others at Laurel House and other DV agencies and talking with survivors is that so many of you are so great at explaining what's really going on, you know, how to interpret the tea leaves, you know, how to see the footprints the rest of us don't, and then what to do about it. So one of the things that I think about, Maureen, from time to time, because it's come up, it's actually I've gotten the phone call or I've gotten the email. And in one case, it was a guy that called me. I knew him through our church. And he said that his daughter had gone to a dance or some other school items, didn't think of it as boyfriend, girlfriend, but the guy on the other hand thought it was, thought it was much more serious than that. And so he was kind of leaning on her one day about us and us and all that. And she's looking at it like, uh, we're not really an item here. You know, we're not really boyfriend, girlfriend. And I don't know the words he used, but he came back with something to the effect of, well, you know, if you're, if you're not my girlfriend or if you're breaking up with me or whatever, I don't know if I can go on living, you know, I might kill myself. And so my friend came to me and, and we had to figure it out. We talked with police and some domestic violence agency people, but, that's a big question. And when something like that comes, I don't know how you could ever be prepared enough to answer that. But what would you suggest if someone came to you and said, look, my daughter's got this situation with this guy and he's threatening to do something very, very serious. What would you say to that person? One of the things that makes this question so hard is that the stakes are so high on both sides, mm-hmm. right? Let's say that the person who has come to the daughter is manipulating this person. Like they have no intention of going through with the act that they have described, but they are willing to cause an extraordinary degree of emotional distress to your daughter at that point, Mm -hmm. right? And they are willing to make them feel responsible for their life. That is a hugely controlling behavior. So that's already a huge red flag for the safety of the daughter who is involved as well. Sure. If the individual who has threatened to take their own life, if the daughter does not agree to continue this relationship that was really more in their mind than one that had actually been agreed upon in the first place. Yes. This obviously is now a very serious health and safety situation for the individual involved. I think in this case, you still have to prioritize the health and safety of your child because they haven't asked for this to happen. They haven't done anything to trigger this discussion, Mm -hmm. right? This is something that was forced onto them. 
Yes. And so I think the most important thing would be to make sure there is distance between this person's daughter and this other person, right? Basically safety planning. I think getting in touch with domestic violence organization would be extremely important, especially if there is a pattern of other behaviors that are happening to figure out what are some of those aspects that you may not even know to consider or thinking about regarding your child's safety moving forward. It's important to also get help for the person who has mentioned these suicidal thoughts or the thoughts of taking their own life reaching out to the administration, making sure that a guidance counselor is able to help them. And if it is a genuine cry for help, if it's genuine suicidal ideation, then obviously that's something that needs to be addressed as well. But it's very important as well to get help for your daughter. This is not something that most people would take lightly to feel like somebody has put their life in their hands. And so beyond general safety planning, it may be very important for, for this person's daughter to be able to talk to somebody about what they are experiencing, how they are feeling about this. One of the questions has to be too, is let's say this happened on Monday and there's school Tuesday. I think part of the conversation is, does she walk through those doors on Tuesday, right? I think a lot of it should also be done in conjunction with the, the student or the child who is yes. now probably reeling from what is happening. It's important, obviously, to watch out for signs that they are not able to clearly think about this decision, about whether to go to school or not, right? Like maybe this is something that has caused so much distress that they're not able to see clearly. So if they're just like, no, of course, I'm going to go to school, you may need to give them much more guidance, or you may need to draw a firm line. If they're saying, I really don't think that I can go to school tomorrow, I'm too scared about what's happening. Like, you want to make sure that your child knows that first and foremost, that you are there to support and protect them, because otherwise, the message they get is that they either have no one or that they are left to fend for themselves on something that no adult should have to fend for themselves on either. Besides the idea of what was put out there, which is that if, you know, you break up with me, I'll kill myself. There has to be the fear that if you break up with me, I'll kill you and then I'll kill myself. Well, and that's the problem is that there are a lot of risks that come with trying to end a relationship with somebody who has essentially set you in their sights. If they are controlling, if they are willing to go to extreme lengths to keep you in that relationship, or if they seem completely incapable of coping with the loss of that relationship. It's a very precarious, mm -hmm. very dangerous situation to be in. And obviously there's the concern for, in this case, the student who was told that their not actually dating partner would take their own life if the relationship were to end. Will they also harm this person who they feel like is should yes. be theirs, right? Or who should be with them. Yes. Because it gets into, if I can't have you, nobody can. Absolutely. Right. We see that in, in these types of relationships, the bottom line is that they are people who exhibit or perpetrate force and manipulation against their partners, especially to extremes are unable to cope with the idea of that relationship ending, especially ending on the terms of the person they are trying to exhibit control over. 
And there are a lot of ways that that can make us think of the potential fatalities involved, right? As you said, if I can't have them, no one can, for example. Maureen, thank you for this eye-opening conversation we've been having. You know, I'm sure there are parents and educators listening in, probably taking notes and want to move forward using new strategies at home or in the classroom. And from this can come great progress. Nothing else I want to get somebody like you in to talk to the students, I would think. Thank you for stopping to chat with us today on the When Dating Hurts podcast. This has been wonderfully informative, and I just want to thank you so much, Maureen. Thanks again, Bill, for having me on today's podcast. I'm so glad that we were able to make the time to have this discussion, and I hope your listeners were able to get something beneficial out of the conversation that we had here today. Before I go, I do just want to take one moment to give a reminder to your listeners that domestic violence services agencies are here to help people at any stage or in any situation where they are concerned about dating or domestic violence. This can be somebody who's concerned about their own relationship or even somebody who is seeing concerning behaviors in a relationship that somebody they care about is in. And we accept all of these types of questions. It might be that you're not sure if it's abuse or not, but you do know that it's making you uncomfortable and that you have concerns. So please know that you can always reach out with questions to try to get further guidance about how you can help the people in your life who may be struggling in an abusive relationship or to get help for yourself. At Laurel House, you can reach us at our 24-7 hotline or our text line, and you can find more information about those services on our website at wwwlaurel house org. You can also check out the resources and text line for loveisrespect.org, which is a national organization that helps individuals who are witnessing or experiencing dating or domestic violence in their lives. Maureen, thank you for that. Again, I've relied upon Laurel House for a lot of different things, a lot of good information, because one of my greatest fears of getting up and giving a speech was when the questions came. And if I couldn't answer the questions, then I feel like the whole thing fell through the floor. And you mentioned love is respect. I go there quite often. Just kind of read over once again all the information, all the warning signs, all the things that they've added, you know, always watching out for new things. So you can never know too much when it comes to the safety of people that you love and people you work with and and friends and everybody. So Maureen, thank you very much. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for your time. I'd like to thank my guests and my listening audience for their support. It is clear our listeners look for and play Survivor episodes above all others. They get caught up between the forces of good and evil. All the time pulling for the moment a victim becomes a survivor. I am open to other victims and survivors who want to join with me on the When Dating Hurts podcast. We can shine a bright light on the epidemic of dating and domestic violence. We can improve lives and save some innocent people from a lifetime of broken dreams. If you want to tell your victim or survivor story, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at